So pain is never completely gone. It can be handled in a way that you are completely unaware that it's there. But if they go back and look at the imprint of a painful thing that happened in a laboratory animal, they can find changes for the rest of that animal's life from whatever that condition was that they had that was painful. And so pain is very much about the body choosing what to amplify and what to de-amplify. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. Medicine is sold as science and as solution. But we know that medicine is as much art as science. It's as much about following up on a hunch as it is following a flowchart map. The promise of medicine is that we have something that is verifiable and repeatable. But the truth is, we are dealing with complex living systems and no problem stays solved in a dynamic environment forever. I find the practice of medicine to be a curious thing. It's sold, taught, and believed to be an objective practice. That there's something broken and is in need of fixing. And sometimes that's true. But what about when it's not? What about those situations, and we work with them every day, when there's not a clear objective answer? When a patient's past trauma has led to ways of coping that worked in the past, but are now the source of current problems? Or when someone comes to us looking to patch up the results of years of self-abuse or neglect, when we're asked to repair the damage that comes from thinking that a handful of supplements will erase the effects of a daily six-pack of soda, when the protective emotional habits that got someone through childhood now prevent growth into a new stage of life, or when life is on the ebb tide, but it cannot be embraced as such because we have so much trouble with recognizing that decline in death is part of the deal that we signed on for here. Medicine is sold with the promise that suffering won't be erased. How are you actually doing with that in your clinical work? It's an uncomfortable question, isn't it? When I'm honest with myself, I find I often noodle on the question of, are my patients better, or am I trying to talk them into thinking they're better? Perception is reality, and our perception is filtered through the stories we tell as well. This sounds simple, but it's anything but. You probably notice that patients will often forget that they've had some annoying problem once it's gone. It's up to us to take careful notes about symptoms because once a patient doesn't have the reflux or their periods normalize or their twice weekly headaches turn into monthly headaches, they often fail to notice. This used to drive me crazy until I realized that the best treatments help people go back to their natural state and simply get on with their lives. They are not thinking, quotes here, I used to have something they just get on with living. And so it takes pointing out that their knee pain is gone or that they're sleeping through the night or they no longer retell the sins of their narcissistic mother. And this is where I usually question myself. Are they better or am I trying to talk them into being better? We look for objective measures, numbers on pain scales, ranges of motion, measures in yardsticks that help us and our patients to see if there's progress. These are helpful to have because our perception is highly unreliable. We just feel like ourselves to ourselves. It's not so easy to measure change on a day-to-day -day basis. Sometimes patients have changed and they fail to notice. Sometimes they think they're different, but it's more of a hope than a 
true measurable reality. And this is why medicine's so hard. It's partly what's happening to the person and partly the story they tell themselves about it. And as practitioners, we have our own stories as well. I suspect that much like yin and yang, the art and science of medicine are not in opposition. They're complementary aspects, and we need both. All right, let's get into today's conversation that starts with lions, tigers, and bears and ends with neuroscience and the beauty of medicine. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. 
Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one month grace period on your new Jane account. Bonnie Wright, welcome to Geological. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, you know, I, I'm always interested in talking to people that are doing interesting things with acupuncture. And I heard that you acupunctured big cats. And I was like, oh, man, I got to talk to you. I, I do. I treat a few big cats about every other week, so it's not the main thing that I do. But I have a little experience treating cats myself. When I was in acupuncture school, I had a cat that was getting up in years, little calico cat, sweet little calico cat, who would like rarely sit on your lap, but would sit next to you. And her hips were getting kind of eh, and I thought, well, let's see if acupuncture works on cats. So I put the cat in my lap. I stuck some needles in the cat, purred, and went to sleep in my lap for 20 minutes. Wow. Nice. I'm thinking maybe acupuncture works on cats. Oh, acupuncture works great on cats. Cats. It, it works great on cats. Yeah. Sometimes they resist at first, but cats are very good at knowing when they feel good and what feels good and how to take care of themselves. And so they, they take very well to acupuncture. Are there certain animals like cats that just cozy up to acupuncture and others that are not so crazy about it? Yeah. I mean, there's certainly some cats that aren't crazy about it too. So you've got to kind of pick and choose your cat. In general, I'd say 70% of dogs do well with acupuncture. Reptiles don't seem to love it that much. I never see the reptiles being all excited that I'm showing up. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So reptiles... You can tell from looking at a reptile if it's happy to see you or not. Well, yeah. like So the tortoise that I treat, as soon as he sees me, he goes motoring in the other direction. Aha. Uh-huh, okay. So he is not excited to see me. He's not crazy about right. it. Right. Good thing turtles are slow. Right. No, he's pretty fast, actually. <laughs> but, but, you know, a lot of the, the carnivores and the herbivores over time, like, seem to look forward to me being there. Like, they'll actually move in to get treated better when I'm there than when I'm not. And so there's there's a sense that they do appreciate uh, their acupuncture after a period of time. That's cool. So you're a veterinarian. Yes. I, I suspect, I could be wrong, but you probably started off as a conventional veterinarian and then found your way to acupuncture. Is that the case? Or were you always kind of uh, the alternative veterinarian? Well, it was actually different than both of those. I specialized in anesthesia, uh, veterinary anesthesia. So partly because I love to work across all the species. And most of the time you have to kind of choose large animal or small animal. And anesthesia let me work across all the species. So I went into anesthesiology where you treat a lot of pain, but I felt a little crippled by my treatment of chronic pain. And so that's why I learned acupuncture, to see if I could widen my toolbox. So I really came at it from a not very alternative path, um, more of a mainstream specialty anesthesia path. Coming from that path and recognizing the tools that you had, 
super helpful in certain cases and not that effective in others. And and so you went looking to see what else can I do? Yeah. Yes. I mean, if anything, I I more firmly than ever believe that when we're treating pain, especially chronic pain, you probably need both the pharmacologic and the non-pharma and that they can work really well together. Tell me a little more about how you see those working well together. That's, you know, chronic pain is such a huge issue in this country right yeah, now. Yeah, it is. I mean, especially with the opioid crisis now and a lot of acupuncturists, you know, having the idea that, oh, well, we can solve the opioid crisis and, it, you know, that might be overselling it a bit. I don't know. Love to get your ideas on on where acupuncture is really helpful for pain and, and where some sort of multi-approach might be more useful, at least in the critter world. Right. And it's, it's a complex question, actually. So there's the pain that's occurring at that time, whether that's from something acute like a surgery or if you have something chronic, like let's say you have bad hips, to use your cat example. The pain that occurs at the moment does respond to things like opioids. But after that, you start reaching for things that are a little bit less obvious. And the, the pain that progresses past just that, ouch, my hips hurt, is actually made worse by things like opioids. So to a certain extent, I think it's a gift to us that the opioid thing has exploded. Because in my opinion, we really shouldn't use opioids for chronic pain anyway. And a lot of the non-pharmacologic therapies like acupuncture, and truthfully like things like exercise, will decrease that amplification of pain. And we also have some drugs that do that. So we have drugs that are pain-modifying in the long term, like gabapentin or NMDA antagonists like ketamine, but that may be <laughs> going too far, both with acupuncture and then with those drugs that wind down the amplification of pain, I think that we can treat chronic pain much better. So rather than dealing with the pain that they're experiencing at the moment, what I'm really trying to do is make them better over the following weeks to months. Obviously, when a person or an animal is in pain, we want to try to get out of it as quickly as possible. It captures all of our attention in that moment. And yet it, it's over the long term, especially for the chronic stuff, where if you're going to help someone, that's where you're helping is over that, that course of time. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's actually really intriguing studies in rodents showing that when we treat with opioids, in three or four days, their pain is actually worse than individuals that weren't treated with opioids. So by trying to get over the pain right away, we are often taking that out of the future and making it a little harder down the road. And I mean, all drugs fall apart somewhere. And that's where really making sure we add some things that mitigate that I think are really important. And acupuncture is just huge for that. What is it about opioids that can actually make something more acute in the short run, like you were just talking about with those rodent studies, or cause problems in the long run? We're kind of talking about very complex physiology, and I'm going to try to keep it fairly elevator <laughs> elevator talk instead of like writing a textbook. But when you experience pain, of course, you can immediately modify that through receptors that endorphins and opioids bind to, so opioid-type receptors. And that is going to decrease the pain directly through inner neurons and the nervous system, basically. 
However, if you are have a lot of endorphins circulating or if you're giving an opioid, there are also other regions of the nervous system that are affected by that drug. And one of those regions are the glia. So the glia are supposed to be the support cells of the brain, but it turns out they're actually really involved in neurochemistry and how we process things. And the glia are actually amplified by compounds that bind to the opioid receptors. So let's say you give a dose of morphine, you bind to the opioid receptors, and the patient feels less pain. Less pain is actually passing through their system. So it's ablating that pain. At the same time, that drug is binding to the glia, and the glia are actually becoming more active. And as the glia activate, they wind up the central nervous system's processing of pain. And so when the morphine wears off, the individual is left needing more. And because the glia have amplified, that dose has to be gradually titrated over time, and they become more and more tolerant to the opioid medication. And acupuncture has some data for helping reverse that through the NMDA receptor. Um, but I also have drugs that can help reverse that through the NMDA receptor. NMDA receptor. N-methyl-D-aspartate. It is the receptor that your body uses basically for learning and memory. So it's a receptor that allows neuroplasticity. And it sits quiet in pain synapses until you have a lot of pain passing through that region. And then it becomes activated and becomes another recipient for glutamate, which is an excitatory neurotransmitter. So it amplifies pain. It's also important in learning and several other things. Pain is important in learning. I'm thinking about some lessons difficultly learned. Yes, pain is important in learning. Well, the NMDA receptor is, is the receptor that helps your nervous system modify itself. So it is the receptor that helps neuroplasticity. And so learning uses neuroplasticity. That's how we learn and keep it. And then pain uses neuroplasticity to become worse. Or alternately, if you have an acute problem and it gets better, the NMDA receptor is also what helps to downregulate itself and allow that pain to become less over time. So it's important for neuromodulation, learning and pain being two different forms of neuromodulation. And acupuncture can affect these receptors? Yes. Yeah. We actually have quite a bit of rodent laboratory animal data showing that acupuncture can inhibit the NMDA receptor and therefore de-amplify pain. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Is, is this acupuncture in general? Is this specific points? Is this coming at it from like a, a particular Chinese medicine diagnosis or Chinese medicine way of thinking? Or is it just acupuncture can be useful in this way? Can we break that apart a little bit? Yeah, so the point specificity question is is one of those really gnawing questions when you're looking at acupuncture, especially neurophysiologically, because these studies often do have a few points that are recognized as being good for these things, and those points seem to have these effects. There are some studies looking at those points and comparing them to very different points that would imply that there is point specificity, but it is fuzzier. And so then that, that drags us into the whole question about how important are the individual points. There are certainly points that are recognized in Chinese medicine as being very good analgesic points that are also used in these studies and, and show these effects. So those two things are clearly tied together. 
I would say that we don't have anything that shows you need a particular Chinese diagnosis or a Chinese point formula to get those effects, but you do need to use those points that have been shown to have those neurologic underpinnings. And so I think that gives us the overlap between the kind of neurophysiologic or scientific approach to acupuncture and then the Eastern uh, traditional Chinese medical approach to acupuncture. Yeah, that's a huge topic these days. Yeah, it is. <laughs> huge. You talk about certain points for analgesia. And so what are the top ones that they've either studied or that come to mind in your particular uh, clinical work? Some of the head GV points, stomach 36. If you're looking at pain in a certain region, the inner bladder line points that correlate to that anatomic region are ones that frequently show up. Um, you know, the bladder line is strong in a lot of the, the pain syndromes. So even some of the more distal bladder line points. Okay. All that stuff is so fascinating especially stuff with, with, with receptors and just the way that our systems modulate with these little tiny, little tiny chemicals that just like will fit a receptor. They'll turn something on or something off. They'll upregulate something. They'll downregulate something. The beauty of our conventional medicine is that we can really look deeply into these little things, very minute transactions, you could say, happening in the body. And the interplay of multiple receptors that are all influencing the same system. It's, it's mind-bogglingly complex. So I'd like, before we get to critters, I am promising critters in this, in this <laughs> <Yep>. episode. <laughs> How do you see yourself working with acupuncture in the way you do? Sounds like you've got two minds. One is a very Chinese medicine mind, and the other part of your mind is, I mean, you could go deep into neurophysiology. Yeah, I guess if if I were to describe where I come from, I probably come from a place that is 80 to 90% neurophysiologic. I have a very deep understanding of physiology because of my training as an anesthesiologist. And acupuncture actually interfaces with those systems beautifully. And in some ways is more powerful than a drug because you don't have to choose whether you're working through serotonin or norepinephrine or the opioid system, but you can kind of let the body choose. So I'm very strongly based in that. That said, I think there's a lot of wisdom that comes to us through the history and this, you know, kind of beautiful history that we get from Chinese medicine. And sometimes things that don't make much sense to me right now, recent one, like liver and eyes, I don't have a, la a rational explanation for why liver would influence vision or the eyes. But that doesn't mean it's not real. A lot of times we have as our understanding of science and physiology increases, we suddenly can measure something. An example is like stomach 36 and GI motility. We actually now have data that tracks all the way from the needle up to the brain, to the dorsal motor nucleus of the vagus, back to the gut, and shows increase in GI motility from just stomach 36. And, you know, maybe 50 years ago, we would have been like, oh, yeah, you put a needle in this place down below the knee and you change GI motility. Well, that's, that's nonsensical. Well, actually, there's, there's a physiologic reason for that. So I very much believe that we can't just move on and see this purely neurophysiologically and ignore that history. I think history is so important. And 
On top of that, I feel like people that have been trained to practice purely from a traditional Chinese medicine point of view still have a fantastic job and haven't lost sense of the whole being, that very holistic approach. And I practice that way as well. So, so I bring a lot of that in because I think those things are, are so important and it's so important to continue to modify what we think we know. Hello everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang Qi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. I listen to you speak about this. I just get this sense that there's this yin and yang way of practicing. You can get very, very tiny, detailed, specific with the conventional perspective, we can get these really wide global views. I mean, things that are, you know, more like poetry and calligraphy than medicine, it seems. And yet it's helpful, right? Cause, cause for some reason we figured out that where that stomach 36 is, you can help with digestive issues. We've known this for thousands of years. Now there's ways the technology allows us to track and see this. I think there's that big thing eh, maybe a yearish ago, right? Where they found, they air quotes here, they found the new organ, the interstitium. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> right. And of course, Chinese medicine practitioners are going, oh, triple burner. Yeah. Yeah. We've been saying that forever. Yep. I exactly. And yet now the technology has developed to the point where, you know, we can see these things. And I came to Chinese medicine because it helped me and I was curious. And so when I, when I was first studying, you know, we'd read things in, in like the point books, you know, and this point does this and that point does that. And I'd be like, really? What? I mean, someone just wrote it in a book. That doesn't make it real, right? They wrote it in a book. And I was like skeptical as hell about this stuff. Until I'd get into clinic and I start putting a needle into certain places and then functionally I would notice other things happening where people, you know, distally would feel it. Something would change and you go, okay, there, something is going on here from a Western perspective. I got no idea. It makes no sense whatsoever. And yet people change. So there's a, there's a kind of reality to it, even if I don't understand it other than from thinking in these Chinese medicine perspectives, which, you know, as a Westerner, even 20 years later, it's still a little bit goofy for me. Right. But I, I think your description of the yin and yang or that 
that we can go down to this fine detail, but there's this lyrical and beautiful quality to to the parts that you can't bring down to that fine detail. I mean, I think it's okay for medicine to have some beauty to it and be a little bit less black and white. That I love. It's okay for medicine to have some beauty to it. <laughs> oh man, if, if if you were a human doctor, I'd be coming to see you. <laughs> yeah. No thanks. <laughs> <laughs> no interest in treating humans. No. 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 I like my I like my nonverbals. That's great. I the, the acupuncture school I went to. There was a fellow who's a veterinarian acupuncturist and have been for a long time. And he started studying to be a human acupuncturist and he got partly through the program and decided, I like animals better than people. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. One of, one of my good friends and co-teachers went and got her degree in human acupuncture too, but she still does more veterinary than human. She does human like one day a week. We may stumble back into this physiology stuff here just because I find it interesting, but I, I do want to come back to the animals and uh, in the acupuncture with the animals love to know generally speaking who are your patients i mean i know you got some you know some big zoo animals but what does your practice look like in general well i do exclusively pain related practice plus my anesthesiology i still do some of that and so i treat a lot of dogs that either have chronic pain through orthopedic reasons or i treat just tons of geriatrics and then a number of cats in that venue as well. And I, I don't just treat with acupuncture. Of course I use pharmacology as well. And then I'll do PRP injections and, you know, some of those other more Westerny ways of dealing with different sorts of, of injuries in primarily dogs. I work in a canine orthopedic practice, but cats filter in as well. And then the zoo, uh, kind of on the side and occasional horses, um, outside of the zoo, but mostly my, Diverse species are zoo-related. And what kind of critters are you treating at the zoo? Well, I start my morning with a tortoise. Then I go over and I treat an African lioness who has has a basically a developmentally shorter leg. So she's got a lot of pain from, from her hind leg being too short. And I treat a hyena. And then I go treat an okapi, which is... It's the closest living relative to a giraffe. They're very, very rare. They're, you know, a big herbivore, basically, with stripy legs. Then I go treat uh, sometimes giraffes, the Shavalsky horse, the wild horse. I have a Shavalsky horse stallion that I've been treating the whole time. And um, he's he's a wild stallion, but he will line up for his acupuncture. He's wow. so cute. Yeah. Um, He'll line up for his acupuncture. He lines up for it. Acupuncturist here? Yeah. Here I am. Here yeah, I am. He's, he's, he completely knows that it helps him. I treat a camel and I have, I'm up to four penguins right now because the penguins do great. The zoos have gotten so good at animal care and welfare that the animals get really old. You know, so there's a lot of geriatric animals at the zoo and the aging patient is just so hard to go wrong with acupuncture that a lot of those end up on my list. And then of course I do the, the big felines, the leopards and the snow leopards and older cats are very prone to kidney disease. So I'm often treating for kidney disease in addition to, to the other things in the, in the elderly felines. Okay. There's a couple things I want to dig a little deeper into and partly because I'm curious how it applies to treating animals, 
but also because I think it it might also apply in big ways to how people treat people, which is, of course, just a different kind of animal. You said something that really caught my attention about you like treating your nonverbal patients. The listeners can't see this. I'm using some software here that lets us see each other as we're talking. We, we're not doing a you know a video recording, but we can see each other. And when you said that, you just get this like huge angelic smile on your face about treating your nonverbal patients. One of the things that it seems people love about going to see an acupuncturist is that they they actually get a chance to talk about what's going on for them. And acupuncturists tend to be the kinds of people that like to listen. And here you are with these nonverbal patients. And yet there's got to be ways that you can listen and understand them. So how do you work with someone? And, and, and I've got some patients, like mostly, you know, Bubba sort of Missouri boys around here that, you know, I call them kind of nonverbal. They don't have much to say. So I'm hoping I can learn a thing or two here from you about how you work with your nonverbal patients. How do you get your information? How do you communicate? Because clearly communication has to happen for us to be helpful to anyone that we're looking to serve. Well, let me use the the domestic animals to start this conversation because I can get a lot more information from them. And when I first started learning chronic pain, I actually went um, to a human pain clinic because it really wasn't taught in veterinary medicine. And a couple of the guys that were anesthesiologists when they heard who I was just like fell over laughing. Oh, ha ha ha. How are they going to tell you they hurt? And then they laughed and went off down the hall and I was a little hurt, (laughs) but you really can. Animals are very good, especially domestic animals at conveying when something hurts. And a lot of the approach is I sit down on the floor with them and get on their level right away so that I'm not a threat to them. I don't put them on metal tables or something like that. And I'll spend about a half an hour getting to know the, the owner of that animal and the dog. And as I do that, I'm getting a myofascial exam. And we do carry our disease very much on the surface. So you can certainly feel changes in tissue feel, changes in heat, myofascial trigger points. We don't have Travel's manual of what links to what. So you kind of have to figure it out over time. But you can find a map of what's going on in the body both pain-related and sometimes other things and the interaction between those by doing a good exam. Like a friendly dog will move away from you if you get to an area that they're worried about or if you have them in a place they can't really move away, they will start licking your hand, like touch me here instead or they'll try to put a different part of their body in the place. And then the two-way communication is that when they ask me to stop inquiring if an area is sore, I will stop. I will move on. I don't continue to push until they cry or they bite or it's, you know, clear as the light in the sky that, that they're in pain. Like you, you stop and you say, okay, I heard you. I hear that hurts. Let's go do something else. And so over the course of, of a half an hour or so, I can usually get over their whole body. And during that time, I have gotten a sense of what is their tissue feel, a sense of where is their pain or restrictions you know, what areas am I interested in? And in the meantime, I've showed them, hey, I'm going to listen to you and I'm not going to push you too hard. Then when I move on and do things like acupuncture, it's just a continuation of that relationship where I won't immediately do painful things and I'll try to work my way around. And if something hurts, I'll immediately correct for it, whether with a nice word or a treat or removing the needle. And so over time, they learn that that I am listening to their nonverbals. 
Um, and sometimes it's subtle, you know, really some very stoic dogs will just like stop panting when they were panting or you'll see their eyes kind of move. And then, you know, there's very friendly dogs that are also just kind of tell you, Oh, that hurts. Do something else. So it sounds to me like you're playing with an animal for a half hour and getting lots of information about what would be helpful for them. Yeah. It sounds like a really playful encounter. It's inquisitive. It's playful. There's a lot of touch. Right. I mean, you know, in our human medical world, we say, oh, we palpate the patient. But really, it sounds like you are using touch to be very inquisitive and then observing what your patient is saying with their eyes and their movement and their behavior. Right. And how that relates to the tactile information that I'm getting. Mm -hmm. And I actually do describe that touch as inquisitive touch when I'm teaching. So. We all, I suspect, as practitioners, could benefit from developing our sense of inquisitive touch. You also mentioned that with aging patients, you can't go wrong with acupuncture. I'd like to hear more about that. Well, on top of treating, you know, the diseases that come with age, and and pain is something that becomes more and more universal, I think, with age. You've had a lifetime to accumulate problems. And even though animals don't live as long as us, they go through the same sort of process just in a shortened period. And acupuncture is just so good at treating pain. Um, But in the aging patient, some of those things that you'd see as restorative, you know, getting into the sort of more energy idea of things, Patients, elderly patients feel so good with acupuncture. And I I see people that come to me with their aging dogs and say, oh, I know we're getting towards the end of life. I'm not sure how much longer we have. And and they'll be my patients for two or three years. And that sense that of just well-being and feeling good and being able to get out and do exercise and be younger and be more vital is really buoyed up by acupuncture. And I don't have any drugs that do that. So that's why I think you can't go wrong doing acupuncture on the elderly is they just, they feel so good. So often, at least for us humans, we're being sold solutions that say, this is going to get rid of your, you know, X, Y, Z, fill in the blank. And especially as we age, and especially if there is chronic pain or chronic issues, it's more about managing it than it is curing it. Now, it sounds like you've got a really smart wild stallion that recognizes this stuff is good. I'm getting in line. In our human community, I mean, some of us have patients like this, but I think it's, it's often there's this idea that I'm supposed to be cured of my pain. I mean, you've got a background in pain. You're like, you're like a specialist. So I think I can ask you this question. We think we're supposed to be cured of it. It's supposed to go away. And if something doesn't make it go away, period, then it has failed. From the point of view of an anesthesiologist, an acupuncturist, someone who knows neurobiology, how can we talk to our patients about this to help educate or inform them to recognize that that acupuncture can be useful, but it's not a one and done, or it may not even be a 12 and done? Well, I think you can start back at the most basic level, which is that we know from laboratory models 
that when you've experienced pain, that impression of the pain in your nervous system is there forever. So pain is never completely gone. It can be handled in a way that you are completely unaware that it's there. But if they go back and look at the imprint of a painful thing that happened in a laboratory animal, they can find changes for the rest of that animal's life from whatever that condition was that they had that was painful. And so pain is very much about the body choosing what to amplify and what to de-amplify. So literally no medication, nothing actually completely eliminates pain. Pain is very much about how your body is handling the variety of things that have occurred to it throughout a lifetime. And a healthy nervous system ought to be able to de-amplify pain to where it is no longer noticed. But again, if you were to look into your nervous system on a cellular level, you would be able to find the imprint of that pain. The glia would still show some amplification in that region. Um, you could see nervous system structures. So you are physically changed by pain in a, in a non-reversible way. And so it's not at all surprising, especially as you add other sources of pain onto that over life, that you frequently have to continually treat these things and manage them. And I think that can actually be a very positive thing because it encourages you to be out in the world and moving and engaging in, in what really is kind of personal wellness. I think handling pain is really an aspect of wellness. The thought that whatever pain we've had in our life creates an imprint, it's there forever. It's, it's in our physiology. It's unerasable. I hear you say it and it makes sense. I hadn't been thinking about that. I mean, it, it has occurred to me that physiology doesn't forget important things that happen to it, pain, pain being one aspect of it. Um, but the idea that we, our, our nervous systems, learn to amplify something or de-amplify it, it, for me, that really fits in with how Chinese medicine works because Chinese medicine isn't about like, oh, we're going to get rid of something necessarily. It's about how do you bring harmony back to a system that has been destabilized? So that, that really fits in that respect. And, and you mentioned the glial cells. We're back to these glial cells, these, these cells that have so much to do with learning. The imprints of pain show up there. How do they show up there? Well, whenever you have pain, the glia do amplify in that region. And they're actually part of what maintains pain for a period of time. So if you have a surgical incision, the pain subsides over the, you know, a lot over days and then certainly more and more and more over weeks. But part of the maintenance of that tenderness in a place where you had surgery is actually carried by the glia. The nerves themselves are no longer telling you there's a problem because you've mostly healed and yet you still have some tenderness and you still have that. And that is actually imprinted in the glia. It's not local in the, in the incision site. It can be if you still have inflammation, but it isn't always. But if you don't have inflammation and you're still tender. Right. Some of that is still represented from the glia. Echo of the glia. Right. And if you look at some of the bizarre things that happen with pain, like phantom limb pain, a lot of that is really carried in part by the things outside the nerves, the glial and support cells that are helping to maintain that sense 
that you still have a painful limb when it's been amputated. What is your sense? And and you can come at it from the Chinese medicine side or, or from the Western medicine or, 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 or your own unique, I suspect, view. How is it that acupuncture helps to re-regulate this stuff? Well, I think that from my perspective, acupuncture helps with homeostasis. And you can, we can then lump that into, well, are we speaking about immune homeostasis? Are we speaking about sympathetic and parasympathetic homeostasis? Or are we speaking about like central nervous system homeostasis, which would be mood, pain, you know, a variety of those things. And so you and I are really talking about central nervous system homeostasis right now. And acupuncture works through several of the receptors and like the NMDA receptor to help the body with that regulation that has to occur in order for the nervous system to modify itself in one direction or another. So as we kind of discussed with the opioids, you can see initial analgesia, but then that chemical, whether it's from within your body or given as a drug, can then cause amplification. So most things in the body can go both directions, you know, back to the kind of yin-yang, the beauty of that idea of these competing systems, it very much occurs in Western medicine as well. The process of amplifying pain so that you stop walking on your broken leg and then de-amplifying it later so that you can then go back to running on that leg is part of homeostasis. And through a variety of, of chemicals and neurotransmitters, we know that acupuncture can modify that homeostasis. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of chi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. This is this is a lot to take in. <laughs> I really like physiology. My favorite thing before I got to acupuncture school and getting ready to go to acupuncture school was studying anatomy and physiology. And I had no idea how interested I was in it until I started studying it. It is an endless puzzle. But it's constantly building. It's so fun that, you know, we keep getting more and more and more. Well, this is really one of the benefits of, I'm going to call it conventional medicine research, you know, and, and, and the kind of science that we have is increasingly the ability to look into these aspects of our physiology that were completely invisible to us at one point. 
Chinese medicine, for some reason, has been able to work with many of these things. How they figured it out, I got no idea. It's reassuring in a way to have modern science say, oh, yeah, look, this, this does connect to that. Yes, there is that. But it's such a different sort of place to stand in and view the world from the Chinese medicine stance of viewing the world. And I'm struck in particular with that you, you, you're kind of a crossroads with this. I try to be, actually. Are you teaching this to other veterinarians? Are you teaching this to like human acupuncturists? I'm curious to know more about your work beside, at this point. I'm curious to know more about what you're doing than just treating big cats. <laughs> I do teach a course for veterinarians. In most states, you have to be a veterinarian to treat animals. So, so I just teach uh, graduate veterinarians, and I teach a 120-hour three-module course, in part because I think that the, the science and the physiology is so important. We have a very strong, healthy group of individuals teaching traditional Chinese veterinary medicine through the traditional Chinese approach. And um, there's only two schools, uh, the one that I teach for, which is the Canine Rehab Institute, and then a uh, second one that teach from the, the medical-based approach. And I, in particular, took this on with this group because I wanted someone from the medical side to also be receptive to and warm towards the fact that there's all of this value to the conventional approach, as you're calling it, and that we can't lose that, that it's such an important piece of it and that it is okay for medicine to be beautiful and you know to to leave some of that alive i think is so important i think when we try to look at it purely from a science point of view it gets distilled down to a lot more black and white a lot less mobile a lot less fluidity in how you treat and i i think that's we don't have to abandon approaching it from the western point of view but i think it's really good to be humble enough to still be like gosh and there's still a lot of things we don't know so Let's not think that we're better or that you have to be inaccessible and super sciencey in order to do a good job um, as an acupuncturist. Yeah. I, I, lo I love your term here, fluidity in treatment. Uh, getting the patient what they need when they need it in a way that they can digest it right. and, and make use of it. And, and for me as a practitioner, a lot of what I do is logical and based on neurophysiology, but... You know, I'm going to treat a vision problem and put in some liver points, and I can't explain that. So I need to be fluid as well. Mm -hmm. I, I want to come back to homeostasis for a moment. That's such a and, – and, and I love it that when I said homeostasis a few minutes ago, you just – you described like four different kinds of homeostasis or maybe five. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, that, that could be seen in those different ways. <laughs> Hadn't thought about that. Now I'm thinking about it. One of the things I think about with homeostasis, you know, we, we hear that it is, and we believe that it's this feedback system that allows us to like, with a vengeance, maintain a certain body temperature, you know, with incredible regularity, regulate our heartbeats and, you know, it's all the things that it does. And we think it, it's a good thing. Homeostasis is a good thing, and it is a good thing. 
You know, otherwise we don't get to, you know, live in a body. At the same time, it seems to me that because we've been injured or we've had an illness or our diet or our emotional habits, whatever, we can live in a, in a type of homeostasis that, that will keep that balance that we're in, but that balance doesn't necessarily mean it's good for us. So our bodies, it seems to me, will hold a homeostatic process in place, but that might actually not be so good for our overall health. I mean, I think that's the complexity of homeostasis is it's not just a fixed point, but it's a whole... Right. it's a set point. Right. I mean, it goes all the way from, gosh, I need to amplify pain, and that is appropriate in the short term, all the way down to I need to de-amplify pain, which can be inappropriate if you don't actually respond to pain like you should for survival. So having some ability to have appropriate pain is actually important. And it's the whole continuum in between. And, and the body can be stuck anywhere along that spectrum. And, and do you necessarily want, do I know when I'm treating a patient, oh, I want them here on the homeostatic spectrum? No, I have to trust their bodies. Actually, I can nudge it with system changing pharmacology, with acupuncture, with exercise, with a combination of the the tools at my disposal, I can nudge their body towards a new homeostasis. But I'm certainly not smart enough to know where that homeostasis should be on that spectrum. Exactly. I mean, in many ways, it's that, it, I hate the term inner doctor, but I'm going to use it anyway, because I don't have a better term for it at the moment, that knows what's best for us in any given moment. And again, sometimes that balance that we've got is taking us in the wrong direction, right? In terms of trajectory over time, it's going to cause, well, like someone who eats too much uh, sugar, right? They're headed for type 2 diabetes. They're going to eat their way into it unless they make a change. And yet getting a homeostatic balance to free up a little bit and be able to shift at least in human populations, it's very, very, very difficult. I suspect it might be true with the, with the patients that you've got. As an uh, acupuncture neurobiologist artist, I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on ways of taking whatever is in place, whatever homeostatic balance we have, and, and just like softening it enough so the system can recalibrate itself, hopefully into a higher level of order. Have you got any ideas about that? I think in a way it's easier in my world because my patients don't necessarily get to choose their level of activity or their diet. So while I'm working with the patient, I am also training their people, whether that's the pet owner or pet companion, as they like to say in Boulder, that comes to see me or whether I'm talking to the, the keeper of that patient at the zoo, we are always brainstorming and troubleshooting. Um, diet, exercise, what do they do afterwards? What did they seem like? What can we change? And so I work with a population where if I can identify something that needs to change, they don't have any choice in it. You know, I mean, we can forcibly change that homeostasis by me saying, gosh, I know they seem old and I know that you feel like maybe you shouldn't walk them anymore, but actually I want you to start going one block three times a day 
right away. And then we'll start slowly increasing that. And so I, I think that I probably have a better ability than you do to change the homeostasis of my patient because they don't really have much choice as long as I can get through to, to the people that are caring for them. Right. And it sounds like the way that you would go about changing that homeostasis is small, consistent yes. movements, literally, in a particular direction, whether it's with diet or with movement or maybe frequency of acupuncture treatments or maybe even certain pharmacological interventions. Yeah. Yes. But slow and steady is what changes it. Absolutely. Yeah. Are the glial cells involved in that in some way? Just thinking about what we we're talking about earlier with learning, wondering if they're involved in this homeostatic balance. You know, they're part of neurohomeostasis. I think what really, you know, drives neurohomeostasis is a symphony of neurotransmitters and their balance. And whether there's more of one or more of another is is part of that homeostasis. And the glia play a role in what neurotransmitters are present and who is responding to them, but they're not the conductor. They're just another one of the, the players in that um, symphony. Okay. Neurotransmitters. I, I can remember being in a uh, biology class back in the mid-80s, and one of my teachers came back from a conference like thoroughly excited because they were beginning to notice how neurotransmitters were affecting not just biology, but immunology and, and a person's psychology. I mean, it's stuff that's old hat right now, but back in the mid 80s, that was like mind blowing to find out the role of neurotransmitters. I'd love to get your thoughts on acupuncture and neurotransmitters. Oh, it's, it's incredibly complex. All of the players that I just mentioned, the you know, catecholamines and the endorphins, all of those in specific laboratory models, you can show influences by acupuncture. I mean, of course, back in the seventies, we knew that there were opioid effects of acupuncture, but if you've completely blocked that, you'd still see some effects. So there must be more. And, you know, suddenly our information on the endocannabinoids is growing and you can see all these little papers popping up about acupuncture and the effects on endocannabinoids. So the neurotransmitters are intrinsically tied to what we do with acupuncture, especially when we're thinking about that central nervous system homeostasis. We haven't talked much about sympathetic parasympathetic balance, but there's this really powerful effect of acupuncture on the vagus, and the vagus is just wildly important in immune regulation. And there's some really phenomenal new papers looking at the interplay between the vagus nerve and the neurologic and neuroinflammatory system and how the neurologic system is really tied to that immune inflammatory system as well. You know, it's all tied together. And, and acupuncture, of course, we know has a huge impact on the, on the vagus, especially um, particular acupuncture points. Yes. Uh, any in particular that, that come to mind for you? Well, you get a lot of vagal input with a lot of the high cervical uh, points because you get overlap through the spinal accessory nerve where it exits with the vagus. So, you know, when you're looking at upper cervical, a uh, ton of vagal input up there. Mm -hmm. So like gallbladder 20 and gallbladder 20. Um, yeah, certainly get down into large intestine 16. These are all, you know, the neck is confusing when we compare quadrupeds versus bipeds because our shoulders are so different. 
So some of the points end up more neck-like in the dog that are or horse that are, you know, a little further back in the person. But I'm suddenly thinking windows are the sky points. Okay, tell me that. You I know? don't know that. Well, windows are the sky points. All right, you you students out there know this a lot better than I do, but they're supposed to have a very strong effect on on a person's psychology and 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 emotive states, and a lot of those are up around the neck and shoulders, as I recall. Excellent. We treat a lot of those as anxiety type points in animals too, and I'm I'm sure the vagus has a huge impact on that. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Is there some research that you might be able to uh, shoot our way that we could stick on the show notes page about this? Oh, I should at least send you this article about the neuroimmune effects of the vagus. That one's oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that sounds super juicy. Anything else that you think uh, our listeners would be interested in? If you got the geeky kind of mindset for this, which which it seems it like I like, do, <laughs> it seems like you do. And you know, again, I I thought we we're going to talk about critters all day, and I had no idea that we were going to uh, take this detour into uh, neuroimmunophysiology, biology, glial. Holy smokes! Yeah, I can't help it. This is really been That's fun. What I do? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, for our listeners that might want to know more about this kind of stuff that you're doing, any books, any podcasts, any any other resources that would uh, maybe float their boat? There's really a dearth of a good resource out there on the veterinary side, for sure. I don't have good resources for you. I've had to put it all together. I mean, literally put together my course over about a year and a half of working. I mean, there's, I have thousands of hours just in a 120 hour course to pull together all of the literature and, you know, look at where veterinary medicine has put points because they're all extrapolated off of the humans. Yeah. There's not a good single source yet. Um, hopefully sometime in the next couple of years, I'll put something out, but it's not out yet. Okay. Well, what I was thinking about, just the way that you're combining your understanding of physiology with Chinese medicine. I mean, I understand that you're, that you stand firmly in the uh, nonverbal animal world, but this seems like it would be really helpful for us verbal humans as well to maybe understand some of this stuff. And and for those people that have a, a mindset for that. Right. I think that the text that helps me the most from the human side is the medical acupuncture text by Phil and White. I think they have a lot of good ideas there and they're not entirely intolerant of the more conventional approach like some of the other sources that look at neurophysiology are. I really think that the neurophysiology groups need to be warmer and friendlier because I think we're all better together. I think we need the yin and the yang. And so, um, but I think that the, the Phil Sheehan White medical acupuncture is a decent human text for it. And it, it certainly captures part of where the physiology is that helps explain what you see from a more conventional approach. Great. Well, Bonnie, I can't believe an hour has gone by already. I have thoroughly enjoyed this wild ride with you. <laughs> thank you. I've enjoyed it too. I love talking about this stuff. So thank you for inviting me. And I hope we talked enough about leopards and wild animals. <laughs> Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. 
If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm -hmm.